Blog Talk Radio. Sometimes when a person's house is on fire, <laughs> and the person to whom the house belongs to is asleep, <laughs> if someone comes in yelling fire, instead of the person to whom the house belongs to being thankful, they make the mistake of charging the one who awakened him with having set the fire. My recruitment by the FBI was very efficient. If someone comes in yelling fire. Anytime you live in the 20th century and you walking around here singing, we shall overcome, our people failed us. You can't deny that. At this point, I question the whole purpose of the Black Panther Party. You can't deny that. Our people failed us. It was a shock treatment for white America. You can't deny that. To see that. black men running around with guns. Our people failed us. You can't deny that. Uh, FBI agent Roy Mitchell asked me to uh, go down to the local office of the Black Panther Party and try to uh, gain membership. We tried to develop negative information to discredit him, just like we did uh, everybody else. Uh, I think I was about 19, 18, 19 years old. And uh, the FBI agent Roy Mitchell called me up on the phone and, and I tried to deny it, but he had, had the evidence, and he said basically it was no problem, that we could work it out. A few months, three, ma- three months maybe passed. Uh, one day I got a call, and he told me that uh, it was payback time. You can't deny that. Our people failed us. It was payback time. If someone comes in yelling fire. Anytime you live in the 20th century and you walking around here singing, we shall overcome. Our people failed us. It was payback time. And I think I was about the fifth member in the Chicago chapter to join. Um, at this big uh, office building on this, and up on the second floor, they had about five or six offices. And um, <clears throat> very little personnel to run things. So positions, uh, it was easy to get a position. So they appointed me as... Uh, Security captain. Um, that was the first time I met Fred Hampton and uh, House is on fire. You can't deny that. The orientation process, uh, the attention they gave to the political climate uh, around the country. The first set of reference books I saw inside the Black Panther Party was the selective works of Mao Zedong. And uh, it wasn't too long thereafter that I started seeing books uh, like the Communist Manifesto of Karl Marx and then these collective works of Lenin. And uh, every night after the office would close, Panthers would sit down and, and they would study these books. We'd go through political orientation. We would read uh, certain paragraphs and then Fred Hampton would explain to us, the new membership, what it meant and what was happening. And so I understood them to be a little bit more sophisticated than again. You can't deny that. I expected that it would be weapons and we would be out there uh, doing turf battles with uh, the local gang members, but they, they weren't about that at all. You can't deny that. If they can do anything they want to us, we might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a proletarian. I am the people.
All power to the people. This is the People's Black Panther Party radio podcast. People's Black Panther Party for Self-Determination. I do want you to keep reference to this date because I'm going to refer back to it. 21 We're going to talk about that. Our national chairman is Yang Nkrumah. National Director of Operations is Sister Seven Khadija. National Chief of Staff, myself, Brother War. And today... We get, in, we get down on the subject matter with the Panther 48, which is Brother E and Brother Sight. Any guests calling in, you can dial 323-870-4191 and press 1 to be placed in the queue. And that's if you're listening, obviously, over Internet. You can actually call directly into the show at 323-870-4191 and press 1 to be placed into the queue. And uh, we'll jump in at the right time. So, as you may have heard, is obviously, and while you listen, today's show is to discuss the movie The Judas and the Black Messiah, do a little bit of a, a review of the archetypes of Fred and William in terms of the roles uh, that William played, as well as the messiahship, as in the title, of Fred Hampton. So with that, I'm just going to give a disclaimer. If anybody has not seen the movie, I'm just going to briefly talk about the narrative of what the movie is about, and then we're going to take it in from now. So Judas, Judas and the Black Messiah, again, is a movie portrayed by Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of Chicago, Illinois' chapter of the Black Panther Party, and an FBI informant, William O'Neill. This film was directed, by, uh, directed and produced by Shaka King. Now, William O'Neill was basically a career criminal in Chicago and was caught by the FBI agent, Roy Mitchell, who tracked O'Neill down for stealing cars. In exchange for having his felony charges dropped, O'Neill agreed to infiltrate the Black Panther Party as a paid FBI informant. O'Neill basically ended up rising in the ranks to become the security captain of the Black Panther Party in, in Chicago. His goal was to build the trust of Fred Hampton and ultimately lead to his neutralization. The FBI deemed Fred Hampton to be too effective and too powerful and O'Neill eventually ended up mapping out the apartment and the layout of the apartment that Fred lived in. And December the 4th, around 4.45 a.m., heavily armed police team arrived into the apartment, stormed inside, and as portrayed in the movie, you see Mark Clark sitting right in front of the door guarding the apartment with a shotgun in his lap and was shot down instantly and killed. And then as they went through shooting up the apartment, they ultimately ended up clearing out the apartment and then shooting Fred Hampton in the back of the head, point blank range twice while he was in his sleep because he was drugged by William O'Neill earlier that morning so that he would not move in ultimately basically be allowed to be neutralized. So that's a synopsis, uh, you know, a layout of what the movie is about. With that being said, I want us to just kind of get into the perspective of what this movie is portraying, why it's important, and draw some additional details in terms of the significance of the two roles, the main two roles that are being played in this movie. So 
Brother E or Psych, which one of y'all want to jump in first on that? <laughs> so again, I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna go on and make it easy for Brother E. I'm gonna make it a little easy. I'm gonna give something to, uh, to piggyback <laughs> on real quick. You talked about the, the two main roles in the movie, and uh, we dealing with uh, William O'Neill and we dealing with Fred Hampton. Now, what we have and you, and one of the things I always say when you under, when you understand writing and what a writer is trying to portray to you, a lot of times a writer is trying to tell you a story without having to actually say it. You have to be able to see it or read it for yourself, and then and then make the proper inference from what you're what you're looking at. In William O'Neill, as you just said, you have a career criminal. He's black. He looks like he's black, but he he's a black man in the in the ghetto going through the same struggle. But his entire mind state is one of a selfish one. And we see that in when he got caught stealing the car and the and the uh FBI officer sitting in front of him and he asked him, you know, when, when Malcolm X died, how did you feel? He says, Well, I've never really thought about it. When Martin Luther King died, was you mad? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, you can be honest. He say, Well, I guess I guess so, yeah. You know, he the truth is the dude he was uh he didn't curl one way or another. It didn't have nothing to do with him. You know, in his world, the only thing that really mattered to him was him. And then you take somebody like Fred Hampton and you could see his story and things that he did in the process of the movie that his goal, his purpose, his life was for the people. To him the people was everything. It wasn't even about him. Even even at the end of the movie when they were gonna send him back to prison. And the crowns came to him and gave him money so he could flee the country. And all of his brothers and sisters were sitting around and telling him, you know, go here, go there, go here. You know they're going to send you back to prison. And he's sitting holding the wad of money in his hand. And he said, well, you know, this is an easy decision. And he passed the money over to a brother and say, you know, take that and do this for the people. Do this, do that, do this. You know, I'm willing to go back to prison. Because he understood his whole mind state was, you know, my life is not mine. My life for the people. When I made the decision to be a revolutionary, I understood that I no longer live for me. I live for the people. So what you have when you just pose these two characters, what you have is one person who is an individualist who lives completely and only for himself. And when you have that type of person, there is no blow too low to make sure that I take care of me. I'm for me, period, point blank. Nothing else matters. And that's why he was able to put sleeping medicine in, in uh, Fred Hampton's Kool-Aid, set him up to be murdered. People that took him in and took him as a brother, people that were willing to fight, kill, and die for him, he didn't mind crossing them because it helped and benefited him. You know, it gave him a better car to drive. It put money in his pocket. They say that he made the equivalent of $200,000 in today's money uh, 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 betraying the Chicago chapter of the Panther Party and betraying Fred Hampton. So this guy was a selfish cockeater. Then you have Fred Hampton, who dedicated his life for the people. So that's 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 uh, one of the differences between these two characters. Another thing, and I know I know Brother E's gonna love this when I say this. I hate that I gotta say this, but uh, William O'Neill he represents the capitalist mind state, while Fred Hampton represents a socialist mind state. These are these are other two differences and the way that these two characters thought, believed, and lived their life. And as you can see, Fred Hampton 
had uh, uh, life had more more meaning. It had more value to it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I think it was Huey that quoted. <clears throat> yeah, I'm gonna quote here, uh, brother E. I think yeah. it was Huey that quoted, and he and he was quoting uh, uh, Mao Zedong when he said this. But he said that uh, how did he say it? He said that the devil for a reactionary is as light as a feather, and the devil for a revolutionary is, is as heavy as a mountain because the revolutionary dies a death that, that represents the stand for the people. And, you know, the ironic thing, well, I ain't going to go too far and break it down historical. I know we got a beard on this, and we got a, a, a little over maybe almost two hours to do it, so I ain't going to go too far in the story and take up all the conversation. So for now, that's all I'm going to say on the two differences I see in these two characters. And let me say this before I let Brother E take the mic. I love Fred Hampton. This is one of my favorite guys in history. You know, I got a few of them. I got a handful of them. I ain't going to lie. But Fred Hampton is one of them. And this is why. Fred Hampton was just 21 years old when he died. Fred Hampton, dudes like Fred Hampton, dudes like uh, George Jackson and Jonathan Jackson, these dudes represented what the real, excuse my language, street nigga would have been if he didn't have that revolutionary spirit snatched from him and just was given that nigga mentality. The real die-hard, square business, ready-for-war uh, uh, street nigga, the one that ended up doing drive-bys and spending the rest of his life in prison, this is what he was, because this is what it was becoming. Fred Hampton, Jonathan Jackson, George Jackson, this is what he do. This is what the streets was making. And and, and I, I truly, truly believe, and it's enough evidence to show that this society intentionally snatched the struggle up from these dudes and, and, and left us with lefty brothers. The same spirit is out there. It's still out there. But that spirit uh, uh, was funneled into gang violence and self-murder. And these brothers, I see so many of them, die-hard warriors, fighters in prison, die-hard street soldiers walking the streets of places like South Dallas and Oak Cliff and San Antonio and H-Town and all these places, California, dudes like Nipsey Hussle, these dudes, this, this spirit was there, and that's what Fred Hampton was. The only difference with Fred is he had that that uh that political education and that revolutionary spirit pushing that warrior. He had that. Dudes like Jonathan Jackson had that. George Jackson had that, and that was the beauty of what of what Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale did when they created that the Panther Black Panther Party because the Black Black Panther Party any institution that's always that's any, at any time pushed in the community, that institution forms the people. And what they did is they built an a institution that had the ability to create revolu- a revolutionary spirit in the people. And that's why they were talking. That's why they were called public en- enemy number one. The same position people like uh, uh, Osama bin Laden had. How the hell some some average street diggers out, out, off the streets came up with a, with a uh, with a 10-point platform and the, and the Freedom and Poverty Office just coming up with ideas. How the hell are they the public enemy number one? Think about that. But my bad. Y'all go ahead. Brother E, they go to you the mic, Brother E. <laughs> <laughs> I love the movie, too. Uh, it, 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 it was all right. I mean, it, you know, I'm not, you know me, I'm not a fan of black movies. At all, there are a couple that that are cool that I like, not a lot. <clears throat> Aesthetically, this one was okay. I, I think it was just 
you know, about regular guys, whatever, I I could deal with it. I could watch it. Nice little movie. Um, but I I have a soft spot. I always have for the bad guys. You know, with Darth Vader or the uh, the evil wig or whatever. I always kind of have a soft spot in trying to understand where they're coming from. You know, and I don't in any way try to excuse uh, Bill O'Neill's role. You know, if he wasn't already dead, I I wouldn't mind seeing him get murdered. You know, that's just me um, because of his actions. But at the same time, there's a part of me that understands this is a 19-year-old kid who got busted, was apolitical by his own admission. There's a, uh, the uh, the entirety of his uh, clip, the, the, the clip, the parts that I used for that, that, that intro, if you go to Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O, the whole um, interview with Bill O'Neill is on there, um, you know, and, and in his mind, he, he even says he didn't really regret it, which that could be the, the conscious versus the subconscious, but on a conscious level, he didn't regret it because he had no allegiance to the Black Panther Party. His allegiance, like I said, was, was to himself, you know, capitalist mindset. I got to get mine. I got to be what gets me in the best position. But I think he represents, unfortunately, a very, very sad state in that he is the extreme, or I don't say extreme. In today's world, he's the commonality of the masses of the people. You know, he's nothing out of the ordinary at this point in time. Um, wasn't that out of ordinary back then because there were so many informants and all of that all over the entire struggle. Malcolm, Martin, everybody had had their Judas in the midst. Um, it just so happens that Fred, along with a couple of others, few others, gained notoriety behind his Judas. And I think that's the value of somebody like Bill O'Neill is that there would be no resurrection had Judas Iscariot not played his role. We wouldn't be talking more than likely, the masses of the people wouldn't know anything about Fred Hampton had it not been for Bill O'Neill playing his part. So again, not excusing anything that he did, not saying I like it, I'm cool with it, none of that, but I get it when there's somebody who's not just, you know, apolitical is, another, is a soft way of saying apathetic. You know, the masses of the people are apathetic, don't give a shit, unless it's them, unless it's their own personal pain that they're dealing with. They don't really care, masses of the people. So, so um, I forget what my line of reasoning was. Uh, so when you have I think you were... the masses of the people, he represents to me the masses of the people and the mindset that we're in <clears throat> and what happens with the masses of the people when there is no purpose, when someone has no purpose, when someone is apathetic about the world around them except for their own fingertips, their own feelings and whatnot, that person is easily controlled and manipulated by an outside force who has a purpose, who has an objective, who has a goal. And I think that's the most significant lesson is that if people project themselves into this movie, 
when I look at it, I'm bouncing back and forth between the two. Not that I would play the role, of, you know, uh, 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 that he played in Fred's life, but certainly that a certain level of I don't care, fuck it, whatever, just whatever. I'm, I'm done. I, I don't care. That I can relate to, but I think that the masses of people look at this movie, project themselves into it, and see. Because you know, we always like to talk about if I was a slave back in the day. I, I, it wouldn't be worth me. I'd be a, a rebellious slave and blah, blah, what we would do and what we wouldn't do, not realizing that you're there now. If you was going to be a rebellious slave then, you'd be one now. So if we project ourselves and really look at ourselves and see what part in that movie fits us the best, are we the Fred Hampton, who, and I tend to be on socialism because socialism just has such a European connotation and attachment to it, you know me, I'm always looking at African communalism. So, you know, are, are we playing that part? Are we reaching to the community to some degree, attempting to invest and to build it up? Or are we more on the apathetic side? Oh, I, I'll get with that. Yeah, you brothers, go ahead. I support you. Yeah, right on. Black power, all the hits. Here's 10 bucks. Let me go on by my business. Where do we fall in that, that spectrum? Where do we fall between the two archetypes type of either Fred and, 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 and Bill or, 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 or what, Jesus and Judas and you know, whoever the particular roles that we want to project into or the particular, particular stories that we want to project into, where do we really fall into that and do some self-analysis? And I think that's the greatest <clears throat> benefit of anything like this is that it sets up, it's almost a kind of a black liberation theology. Even just the name, Judas and the Black Messiah, we could very well be talking about the Black Messiah. Oh, yeah, that's Jesus and his Judas. But it just so happens that we're not. We're talking about Fred Hampton and his Judas. Same story, same idea, but taking it from a black theological perspective, applying our own situations and roles in every day, everything that we deal with, things in which we're, for the most part, uh, we can identify with street niggas, with, you know, uh, uh, sisters and brothers and day-to-day lives and being broke and, and having to do this, <clears throat> all these types of things and, you know, pool halls and people stealing cars. To some degree, one way or the other, we can identify with that. So it's taken that story from the Bible and made it relevant to our reality. And so I think it, I can give the props for that black liberation theology uh, type of plant that it has. So well, I don't like you it, liking the bad characters. By the way, you and this black movie. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, you kill me with that. You realize that, right? <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna get into some of the reality of it <laughs> and pick uh, going back on. Um, the polarity, what I always refer to, the polarity. And I'm going to go back into what I said you earlier like, about. You can't, you, you can't like one without having some appreciation for the other. So, yeah, take that. Okay, let's take that with this concept of polarity I'm going to get into. Okay, again, today's date, 21 to 21. I'm going to break that down in a few minutes. But just talking about the concept of the two. Two main characters, two main concepts. We kind of talked about it a little bit, but let me break it down even further. Just from the perspective of life in general, as we see, good, bad, up, down, 
right, left, whatever, a polarity. What you had is one individual whose life was dedicated to the people, another individual whose life was dedicated to himself. Throughout the entire movie, you were drawn, drawn in on the way both people see life. Both people are living their life. As you deal with the complexity of polarity, take that into account what happens all the time in terms of the political scene in drawing people to take one extreme for the other because it's these extreme reflections of one another that put us in positions to where we're not able to see revolution from the proper perspective. What I mean by that is oftentimes when you want to conquer and divide, which, again, let's just take 21. We talk about the two becoming the one or keeping the two from the one. So I'm just getting into a little sacred geometry as we talk about those numbers. As you flow into that, the idea between <clears throat> conquer and divide is always drawing an extreme, always causing you to do one or the other. It's no different than when we talk about computer programming and you deal with binary and you go into either it's one or it's zero. When you get into analog and you start talking about degrees that goes in between one and zero, at what point do you reach a threshold to make a decision as to whether it's actually this or it's actually that? So life in itself draws us into these scenarios, and oftentimes we find ourselves fighting between it, it, either something is justifiable or not. As you look into the life of William O'Neill, he constantly continued, and this is outside of the movie, but his life, he constantly continued to justify his actions by referring to the Panther Party as extremists. But in that extreme perspective, he also used that to justify his extreme of basically giving himself, giving the people, or getting a, basically killing an icon or killing a movement or taking part in the killing of a movement at that time. He didn't kill the movement. He took part in his part of trying to kill the movement as a result of feeding his selfish extreme, which had to do with basically not wanting to serve five years, the five-year sentence, for an extreme behavior that he was living out because as an individual, he never got his life together. We're talking about a kid basically at that time who ended up in a position to where he became a career FBI informant because the movie only talks about him in terms of what dealt with, with Fred Hampton, but he served in a greater capacity for the FBI than just Fred Hampton. It even came to the point to where uh, if you go back on YouTube, you can find videos where Fred Hampton Jr. actually and, and, and Deborah actually went to this cat's funeral when he, when he committed suicide later on in life and couldn't even recognize him because of plastic surgery. He was a part of the witness protection program. They moved him around. He even went back to Chicago and lived secret, a secret life after years later. But ultimately, he ended up dealing with what we would call reactionary suicide because fighting and battling within itself as to the lifestyle he had chose to live and trying to justify that lifestyle 
ultimately caused him his death, ultimately caused him to take his own life. So here you go, a man who was the key, served the key role and key capacity in the assassination of another man that lived for the people, and this man ultimately ended up taking his own life as a result of his portrayal and betrayal of his people. So when you look at the extremes of this situation and you take the movie and that showing that basically tunnel vision and showing you that perspective between them two, because that's all of the movie did. There's obviously way more going on than what the movie is portraying. But what they did is they did their best to keep you in a tunnel vision between those two actors or between those two parts, which, again, goes into the polarity that we're dealing with to show you on one side how somebody would dedicate their life for the people and their personal life and their personal gain, their personal, um, you know, endeavors don't mean anything. It's all about living for the people, and the other person is doing the exact opposite. So what it makes the listening audience do, the ones that are not even involved in the movie or the struggle, so to speak, or the Panther Party, what do they have knowledge of, you know, that don't have knowledge of it, will go into this thing about, well, do you live for yourself or do you live for the people? And if you do live for the people, to what degree do you sacrifice yourself for the people? Because you see Fred Hampton dies. You also see another, uh, another polarity within this movie when you hear Deborah talk about making sure she lives for that baby. And she noticed how at one point in time in the movie, it portrays the fact that Fred is almost as if she projects that Fred is going to get assassinated or going to die, but yet she has to live on. So in essence, you're, showing, you're drawing the same type of polarity. Well, we, we also have to be willing to die for the people, but we also need to be willing to live for the people, even a greater level of sacrifice. So although people horn, you know, are homing in, on the sacrifice that Fred made and the revolutionary suicide move he made, you have to look at the dichotomy and the revolutionary perspective that she had to make in order to see to it that Fred Hampton Jr. was born. So it was another extreme. It was another polarity that had to be drawn, whereas one had to die for the people and one had to live for the people to make sure the legacy could be carried on. And as a people, we have to look at things from that same perspective. Oftentimes what's glorified is the debt for the people. But being in this movement, we need to also draw from the strength and the character and the character and in, 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 in the embodiment of living for the people too. Fred did live for the people. Fred was not concerned about his fate because it was all about the people. But in a certain degree, where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line and say, I have to endure certain things for the people? He had no choice in the matter because William O'Neill basically served his part to see to it that Fred did not live, that Fred was neutralized. The FBI being behind all of this saw that allowing him to go to prison and come out actually made him more powerful because as he did, he decided he was living for the people. He did not allow prison to break him. He did not allow that condition to take him away from his views on the people. So he didn't become bitter. 
He didn't. He was not broken. So in essence, by just trying to throw him back in jail was not good enough. So what you had is you had J. Edgar Hoover recognize the fact that it's not good enough to just lock this dude up because look what it did to, to Huey. The whole campaign between Free Huey actually drew a whole lot of strength for the, for the, for the Black Panther Party in the movement. It drew people together. It actually served at the same capacity on the West Coast. The Free Huey movement served the same capacity on the West Coast in terms of what Fred, uh, Fred Hampton was doing with the Rainbow Coalition. It, brought, it drew people together to deal with the fact that we all have certain levels of oppression. We all can come together. Throughout the movie, you saw the polarity of either we are divided or we together. So that's the polarity I'm talking about. Either, either you stand together or you stand divided, and you stay divided. So to me, when you look at the movie and you look at the portrayal and you look at what's going on, the underlying messages within the movie, it's about drawing, to me, it's about drawing those polarities and learning how to live between them and not fully committing yourself to a certain perspective which causes you to either topple one way or the other to a certain extreme. But that act within itself takes a certain type of mentality in terms of revolutionary living and a revolutionary lifestyle to be able to deal with. Because what you're talking about is you're talking about hardening yourself to a condition. You're talking about basically enduring uh, suffrage for the sake of conditioning the mind to be able to endure the type of pain that you are going to go through and the type of sacrifices that you're going to have to make so that you can live or die for the people. But this takes conditioning. This takes a mental type of conditioning. The 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 phrase the people also includes the one that comes to get you. Say that again. Yeah, I, I couldn't quite hear you. The phrase living or dying for the people, the people includes the brother or sister that comes to get you. Now, now I, I would disagree on that. And this how is why. Buy, how can you buy him from the people? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me say this. Now, <clears throat> Ward just broke, this, just broke it down about how the FBI realized that allowing Fred to go to prison wouldn't neutralize him. It would only turn him into a martyr and make him stronger like it did for people like Huey P. Newton. Matter of fact, in the movie, he, he mentioned Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver. He said uh, prison made Eldridge Cleaver a, best, a best-selling writer. Prison made Huey P. Newton a martyr. So uh, sending Fred Hampton to prison wasn't enough. Now, if we understand this, uh, Fred Hampton, if you listen to a lot of Fred Hampton's speeches, then you know that Fred Hampton was a great orator, youngster, but great orator. But the ideas he was spitting came from the ideology that Huey built on. Huey was a terrible orator. He wasn't, he wasn't good at speaking. But people like uh, uh, Bobby Seale and, uh, and Fred Hampton and these brothers go out to the, in the streets, and they would, they would spit the ideas and the concepts that, that uh, Huey had been teaching. And one of the major ideas that Huey taught was that prison had no victory. And he broke it down like this. He said, that the prison administrators, when they go to dealing with a prisoner, they deal with a prisoner from a false idea. 
they 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 deal with a prisoner like you deal with a mathematical equation. Because in mathematics, we learned that the, that the sum that the sum of a thing can never be greater than its part. And so they think, well, if I take the two arms, the two legs, the head, and the body, and put that in the prison, then I have everything that made that person who he was in a prison cell. But that's a false idea because the human being is greater than the sum of his part. Because the human being is also the ideal that he lived for. So if you place the human being in prison, the human being has the ability not only to still stay alive and to stay effective because the ideals cannot be caged. Those ideals are still moving amongst the people. But he also has the ability to infect new people in prison that never even thought about those ideals before in their life. You know, and, and when Huey, in, in this in this treaty, when Huey described the people, and I'm going to get to this point, he wasn't talking about the individual. He wasn't talking about Brother E, Brother Syke, Brother well, He wasn't talking about the individual person. So the individual person, no matter how selfish they are, does not define the people. But the people is not an individual. The people is an ideal. It's a concept. It's an ideal that the revolutionary believes in so deeply of what we as a people can be, people are. And that I, that revolutionary, he said that, that, that the revolutionary must basically be a fool because he must, he must be foolish. Because even though we see the nigger, the drug addict, the whore, the prostitute, the cross-action, shaded, low-life, no-good nigger, even though we see that, the, the revolutionary has to believe in something better. So the revolutionary believes in the people. That's what the people are. The people is a concept. It's an ideal. It's not William O'Neill, but a concept. <clears throat> and so he said, he said that basically once you understand that, that guns, uh, bars, and brick walls cannot hold down an ideal. An ideal cannot be caged. That ideal can never be suppressed. And that when the people start to accept that and live by that ideal, then they'll be living out one of the most beautiful ideas in humanity. You know, that, that's what he broke down, and that's what Fred Hampton bought into. Fred Hampton believed in that concept. He understood that even though if he died, the ideal would still be alive, and that's why he wasn't afraid of dying. That's why he wasn't afraid of going to prison. You know, that, that's, that's where the, that's where the, the carriage and in the, in the, in the face of things that would crumble the average man came from from people like Fred Hampton. That's where it came from. And then in the process, that's why, the, the, that's why you have to be foolish. In the process, true indeed, the, because of the, the idea of the people has a certain look to it, that cross-action nigga has the ability to slide in on you. He has the ability to come in to the organization and become the security captain. He has the ability because you believe so much in the people, you actually open yourself up. To being <clears throat> to being crossed or eliminated, you open yourself up to that. You know another idea that Huey talked about in Revolutionary Suicide. He talked. He told a story about. Uh, <clears throat> he said this defined Revolutionary Suicide. He said that once there was a foolish old man sitting at the foot of a mountain, and he was digging at the mountain with a spoon. And then a wise man came through and saw him digging at the mountain with a spoon. He said, "Hey, what are you doing?" And he, the, the foolish man said, I'm trying to move the mountain. He said, you trying to move the mountain with a spoon? And he said, yeah. He said, man, you out of your mind. So the wise man walked off, and the man just kept at it, you know, going at the mountain with the spoon. And and in time, his children, you know, they came of age, and they went out there with him and started helping him, and they brought their own spoons. And his grandchildren came out there, 
and they brought their own spoons. And then the people in the community came out there, and they brought their spoons, and they saw it helping move the matter. And over time, you saw that the mount, that, that that progress was being made. And the, and the wise man came back through years later and saw this progress being made. And in the story, and, and uh, it's in the it's in the book Revolutionary Suicide. And the story says that God seen this from the heavens and then moved the mountain instantly. And he will explain this, broke this down, that this story what it represents is that the revolutionary is the foolish man. His job is is he can't move the mountain with a spoon by itself. The mountain represents oppression. He can't move it by itself. But he can get those who are like-minded, that's, that's his children and his grandchildren, to start participating in the process. process. Other revolutionaries, community activists, humanitarians, people that believe in the beauty of the spirit of the people, to start participating with them. And finally, the people themselves, this is what, this is what God represents in the story, will move the mountain instantly because the people had the ability to move this mountain of oppression overnight. And that's what he said that, that, that the revolutionary has to do. He has to attack that mountain with that spoon. And this is, this is kind of the ideal that revolutionaries find themselves forced to deal with. Fred Hampton deals with, uh, or Huey De- or even a Malcolm has to deal with. Malcolm was so stressed in his last days because he was constantly going at that mountain with a spoon. And sometimes it's hard when you, when you see it, when you had that vision, it's hard to get others to see that vision and start going at that mountain with you, you know. And that's why I say I somewhat disagree because the people never meant or never re- meant to represent an individual. If that was the case, we would have been gay, but that's why people find themselves depressed or sad in this movement and quitting because the individuals always fail us. The individuals, we all have seen it uh, long enough, we've seen it. The individuals, uh, um, most of the time, do not be, end up being who and what they say they're going to be. But what we understand, we got to take it outside of that individual. That person cannot define the level of my dedication to struggle, but the people is, the, is a greater ideal in which I can see, I can visualize, and I believe in. And that's what Hugh and them and Fred never were talking about when they said to people. There's, there's a Okay, yeah, caller, let me, uh, number starting in 8, ending in 6855, and bring you in. You in, 6855, go ahead, caller. Oh, can you hear me? We can hear you. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, hi. So uh, my my name is Kudzi, and I was invited by Brother Eric, so I'm very happy to be here. Um, I, I, I reached out to him sometime last week, and I was like, you know, have you watched this movie? Uh, and I'm so glad that he invited me to this podcast because uh, when I watched him, I did a, I wrote a paper years ago in college on uh, Fred Hampton, Hugh Newton, and um, and the uh, Black Panther Party. Uh, so I was really happy when I saw the movie. But I, I have a question for you guys. You know, uh, we're talking about how uh, William O'Neill and Fred Hampton were both quite uh, on, on opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Uh, one was super selfish and all about his own self-gain. And we have one who was really about uh, bettering the people, right? Um, but have have you guys thought maybe that they... There was, uh, they were both pretty much the same, because 
when um, when I when I did some of the research on Fred Hampton and I didn't watch the movie, um, I'm I'm seeing a little bit of selfishness on on Fred Hampton's part. I don't know if it's just me, but I'm I'm seeing a little bit of that because and there was something self-serving a little bit about how he went about leading the party. Um, I don't know if anybody has noticed that or anybody, you know, kind of agrees. Uh, because the, because I, look, I look at it this way, right? If there's no liberation struggle that centers on one person, but it seems as if this particular revolution centered on him. And it's so much so that the FBI felt him being neutralized or him um, going away meant that that was the end of the party. Do you think that uh, – I'm thinking that if they thought that this uh, this party and the revolution and everything that it stand, stood for um, was going to succeed even w- without him, that they wouldn't, that they wouldn't have bothered – neutralizing him it seemed as if everything centered around him he was the decision maker he uh he was the leader and a good leader a very great leader but there was no deputy there was nobody you know the the party itself fell apart as soon as he was gone um or when he was in in prison It, it fell apart completely and the only time that it seemed like they came together and uh, participated in all these events that, and all these things that he was, um, he was working towards was when he was around. So when I was, you know, looking at them, of course, you know, he's, he's a great leader, uh, but I, I sort of looked at them almost the same that, you know, there was self, William O'Neill's selfishness was, was, was apparent. I mean, there's no doubt that he was, you know, selfish, self-serving, capitalist, all of that stuff. But Fred Hampton's was a little bit more subtle there was some self selfishness there that we see in a lot of our leaders. You know, this you know, power is addictive. What do you guys think about that? I want to I, I want to give in. a response to that. <clears throat> okay, I'll let, I want to give and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep it short. I'm gonna keep it short. I ain't gonna go in too far. Uh, no, you ain't. But now, <laughs> now, now, when I look at Fred and and and. As the sister said, studying Fred even before the movie came out. You know, I, I probably saw a study Fred I, maybe 15 years ago. I don't know, something like that. And uh, matter of fact, as he said, his famous speech that makes it seem like it's the only speech he ever gave. That's the speech that was almost like a prayer to me when I was in prison. I used to say that over and over and over and over in my head because it gives a certain level of strength when he said. Uh, next time you see me, I may be dead, I may be in jail, I may be anywhere, but you can believe that the last words on my list would be, I am a revolutionary. You got to keep on saying that. When he, when he said that, that, that speech is because when you're sitting in prison, you got to understand that the whole purpose of being in prison is to break your spirit. And I've seen so many brothers allow their spirit to be broke. A lot of brothers, instead of dealing with being in prison, they went and, and got themselves put on psych meds so that they wouldn't have to deal with the reality of, of where they was at. And you'll see a lot of these brothers coming home from prison, and they don't have the same look in their eyes that they had before they went to prison. But anyway, let me get back to the point. Uh, but I don't see an intentional selfishness in Fred. Now, human beings, by nature, we, we all have selfishness. 
it's the it's the basic uh, it's a basic natural uh, drive for survival that's encoded in us. But in Fred, what I see is is is, is his story, and as the sister just explained, what I see in Fred is a person doing what it is that they know to do in order to move the movement forward. I'm pretty sure that somebody like Fred wished that the entire party was filled with him. Because if the entire party was filled with Fred, then then he would have been able to accomplish his goals. I'm sure that, that somebody like Fred is simply doing the best that he knows to do at that time to move forward. I done seen brothers and not trying to uh, blow War's head up and not trying to blow Brother E's head up, but I done seen War carrying the party when we was in Dallas. I don't think War was doing it because he wanted – matter of fact, I know for a fact War wanted a lot of that weight off him. But he carried it because he just feels like it has to be moved forward, and he's moving it forward. And a lot of times you'll, you'll find that in, uh, in human society, a lot of times when these instrumental figures be taken out, that it does destroy the move because that is human's na- human nature. One of the things we fail to realize, we believe in this great idea that all the people are leaders, and that's just not true. Human beings are gregarious, and, and what that means is we have to come together and we have to unite with one another in order to be in order to build the great societies that we build. I don't care if you go to commit or if you come to modern day times, we had to come together and move as a unit. But it wasn't a, a group of people that had reached this high level of consciousness. It was individuals that reached this high level of consciousness and was able to lead the people to the to these great heights. A lot of the time, the people had to follow simply with a lot of, and, and that's and that's one of the concepts and ideas that Europeans understood and they mastered as far as taking out, <clears throat> taking out those instrumental, quote unquote, messiahs and making sure that they eliminated their leadership. And the, when uh when when Jagger Hoover wrote the the uh, paperwork for COINTELPRO, he said that the purpose of it was to eliminate a black messiah. And in his actual original writing, he named three people that he saw as that black messiah at that time. He named Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, not four people, my bad. He named Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Elijah Muhammad, and uh, Stokely Carmack. He said Stoke, Martin Elijah Muhammad wasn't really a problem because he was too old. Malcolm was the martyr of the movement. Martin would be a real problem if he get off the liberal nonviolence and really start accepting revolutionary concepts and ideas. He'd be a serious issue. And Stokely Carmichael is somebody that has to be eliminated. He, 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 he mentioned these four people by name. And it's not because these four people were selfish as hell and placed themselves in the position of being leaders and, and wanted the whole movement surrounding them. It was because of human nature. When that when that strong force stands out, people by nature follow it, and that and that's what I think what happened with with uh, with Fred. I and 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 looking at Fred, I honestly and and I'll only say that he was selfish because he was a human being, and we we all have selfish instincts. But in looking at the guy's story and reading anything about the guy, I don't see where the guy was was uh, selfish. He could have, the guy could have made more money and probably got more fame if he would have just started a gang in Chicago because he was highly respected and loved by the gang. People like uh, 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 David Barthel, uh, uh who started the Black Disciples. People like, uh, 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 I can't remember his name, Larry Hoover, or people like uh, Jeff Ford. These dudes had more power and had more money. I'm sure Fred could have been one of them. 
Fred had so much pull in the streets that if he would have directed his energy towards street uh, uh, street knowledge, he would have definitely been a Jeff Ford. He would have definitely been a David Barthel, you know. And that's just that's just my idea on the concept. I told you. <laughs> I, I, I I like to jump in and crack at it too. Let me, let, let me get a crack at it. What I see is a certain level of of determination that can come off as arrogant or that can come off egotistical as if it's self-centered. When I look at people like Fred Hampton, I look at somebody who knew at a super early age, and mind you, the FBI was monitoring this cat when he was in his teens. So we're talking about somebody who knew his purpose in life at an early age. Most people are not able to identify who they are and know thyself at any age. <laughs> we're talking about folks that go from cradle to the grave. They have no idea what the hell they're doing. we also talking about people that even joining these movements, whether we're talking about then or now, who typically join them because they're trying to find themselves and they know it's the right thing to do just from a moral, a morality standpoint to be about serving the people to some capacity. Oftentimes, that is what helps people to offset the fact that they are having selfish intent in life and how they live in their life. Well, they're going to turn around and put some money or do something to give back to the people. Hell, kingpin drug dealers will turn around and open up, uh, you know, grocery stores and stores and, and, and do things to put money right back into the community that they poison. So from that standpoint, what you had within Fred Hampton is you had somebody who had a vision and knew how to navigate that vision. And his goal, in essence, was to show his membership, this is how you do it. This is how you live. Going back to what something Sykes said in regards to the fact that most people can't be leaders to that degree, most people have not found their true purpose in life. Fred was high off the people because he knew this is where he belonged, period, point blank. So from that stance, knowing that I know where I belong, knowing that I can see the vision that I need to carry my people toward, knowing that it, is, it, just, it just comes natural to him. So that oftentimes to most people can come off as arrogant or self-centered simply because he's there. He's so far ahead and beyond the average person. That is why people within the FBI and the intelligence community in general, and I can definitely speak on this, the intelligence community within general does psychological evaluations and profiles on people, and they are able to separate those that see purpose in life and those that have defined their destiny and have carried out that destiny versus the mass majority of, of, of people who don't know what the hell they're doing and trying to muddle their way around in life. See, when you have somebody who knows it, their purpose in life, they don't fear death by no degree. It is not something that is taught to them to, to not fear death. They are at one in that spiritual peace, physical peace, mental peace with everything that is. They are one with the all. Being one with the all in that capacity makes you super powerful because you cannot be uh, broken down. The only way you're going to eradicate them is to have to physically eliminate them because they're going to do what it is they was put on this planet to do. They know what they have to do. They know what they must do. And they are super determined to carry it out 
to their death because this is what they have defined as their destiny. They know what they're, what's expected to them out of life. It's as if they have read the book of their life, and all they got to do is play the role. They know it. Most people don't know this. And since most people are trying to find themselves in the course of doing something good for their people, they cannot live or walk in the footsteps of somebody who is a visionary to that degree because this person knows it. And oftentimes, even when someone attempts to teach it, all you can do is hope enough of that essence is carried on to the next generation and somebody else will pick it up. The FBI counterintelligence program was, is in to this today. Let's just use social media as an example, dealing with the algorithms that are out there. They profile these type of individuals. When you profile these type of individuals, they will automatically be on the radar. What are we talking about, regardless of what industry they're in? The same thing was happening with people within the hip-hop industry, jazz industry, uh, movie industry, uh, corporate world, you name it. There are certain people who are on the radar simply because they have defined themselves to the degree to where they are supervisionary and know their purpose in life. And if a person like that ever becomes politicized to the point to where they want to free the people and they want to deal with attacking and, 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 and eradicating fascism, hey, what are we talking about? So let me go back real quick because I think this is a perfect time to do it and draw the perspectives on those, those number schemes. So today's date, 21 days into the second month of 2021. Fred Hampton was 21 when he was assassinated. The movie is primarily that we're talking about. is primarily dealt between two characters or two polarities, one that lived for the people, one that lived for themselves. That's, that's the second, right? So we got 21, we got the second, and then on February the 21st is the day today that Malcolm X was assassinated. We're talking about somebody else that was a visionary to that degree. This is no coincidence that we're having this discussion on February the 25th, talking about the assassination by the FBI of another individual. And now I'm going to tell you how even crazy this is in terms of alignment. And this is important, people, that y'all learn how to read patterns. February the, 26th, the, the 21st, 1965 was when Malcolm X was assassinated. If you subtract 1965 from the year 2021, you get the number 56. In the year 1956, J. Edgar Hoover formalized the covert program called COINTELPRO. Wow. How coincidental is it that today we are talking about what COINTELPRO did, the assassination of an individual, the polarity of one person who lived for themselves, J. Edgar Hoover recognizing that he had to establish a program that sole purpose was to prevent the black messiah and prevent the rise of anything that would be able to neutralize the United States of America from being the country that it was in terms of the power, the power it centered around the world. See, when we are able to read patterns, people, we can see far beyond and far back into what's going on. I refer to that a lot of times, and oftentimes is the trifactor. I call that the trifactor, past, present, future, being able to see between and navigate between all, all elements of it. 
The way you do that is by being able to see the sequences that go on within life. So when we talk about this movie, and I talk about the polarity of, mm-hmm. of these roles that mm-hmm. took place, as well as the individuals, and even uh, coming from the sister's perspective, when we talk about the, the being selfish or self-centered, that even in itself goes into the fact that I, am, I can be self-centered, meaning that I know thyself. Is it actually a bad thing to be self-centered? It depends on the intent. It depends on where you're going. But now we got to get into the whole aspect of the extremism from that standpoint. So I don't think it's a bad thing at all that Fred Hampton was self-centered, but his self-centeredness was based on his love for his people, not his love for consumerism or acquiring. See, one was letting go. The other was about taking in and hoarding. William O'Neill wanted to hoard. And in doing so, he propped himself and put himself in certain positions in life and worked hard at being able to live that, that certain lifestyle based upon just the fact of circumstance that he got caught up in the wrong place at the right time. This people is also what I want to what folks to get out of this point from the movie is that most people tend to think when they don't know any better, they tend to think informants or people that actually end up bringing down movements or folks that career wise decided, hmm, up one day they just up and decided they want to do something wrong to hurt the people. That is not it. It is typically our dysfunctionalities that brings us to this fork in the road that causes us to be manipulated and used against our own people. That is what the Judas is in his, in his, in his perspective. That is the Judas factor. Study it as a science. When we study weaponization and warfare as the, as the science it is, then we can see this. Then the vision is clear. Then the path is clear. Then when you are able to travel the road of dealing with warfare, dealing with opposition, you are at ease and at peace. This is why when true warriors go into battle, they can smile, regardless who's going to win. They embrace death. They embrace life. They embrace the outcome. That is because when you talk about visionary, when you talk about defining your purpose and living off of purpose, it is a whole different outlook than when the average person who is suffering from lifelong dysfunctionality is just simply just basically copycatting what they think is the right thing to do, what they think is the best thing for them, what they've been told is the best thing for them, without experiencing true life in its own essence. This is why all about power to the people. This is what Fred was speaking on. The point is, when you learn to embrace yourself, when you learn to recognize the power that we hold, there ain't no stopping us. So you want to keep the people divided. You want to keep the people in in polarization. You want to keep the people at ends and at odds with each other. So Fred had to be assassinated because Fred knew how to get people to look away from the differences 
and to find the, the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the unification, in terms of why we can become together, what we can build on. And it's no different to today when you talk about the movement, because oftentimes when people come into the movement, whether we're talking the Panther Party or any other grassroots organization, there's a lot of infighting because people come to the movement with baggage. People come to the movement not knowing themselves and not willing to invest the proper time to learn what they are. So, therefore, an identity is not even here. But yet they want to serve the people, yet they want to do good in the community. But what you will do ultimately is bring that dysfunctionality to the group and create further division. This is why we got so many variants and forms of different party formations out there right now. This is why we got a church on every corner right now. This is why it's easy to put up liquor stores right now. So we have to be able to move away from that self-centeredness that this sister is talking about. So I think she kind of hit it right on the head, not necessarily about Fred, but about the fact that these are the ills that have to be addressed in society. And I think that movie does help, if you look at it the right way, to draw that out. Now, I'm, a, I'm done with preaching for now. I just wanted to get that out there. Go ahead, somebody. <laughs> the, old good, the old good Reverend Robert Warlock. <laughs> All right, there, Bishop E. I'm comparatively short and say that I absolutely agree that the selfishness existed in both of them. Huey made a quote, and the arrogance. Huey quoted, and, you know, I'm not with the quote as much as Psyche. Sy- Sy- you probably know this full quote since it's one of your mans. Um, but he said that something to the effect that we're the only organization that stands the problem and how to deal with it. You, you know the quote I'm talking about? Hello? Yes, I Hello. do. Yeah, do you, do you hear me? Yeah, do you know the quote? Yeah, I know. I, know. I, I, don't, know okay. I don't know it verbatim. I don't know it verbatim, but I know the quote you're talking about. Okay, so that quote in and of itself is a very braggadocious statement. It is, me and me had this conversation years ago, there is a certain amount of arrogance that goes along with doing what we do. You can't walk the streets and have street cred and not be arrogant. You just can't do it. It, it. it don't happen. And this, that I'm saying, all of this includes Fred Hampton, Malcolm, everybody. The yin and the yang of it is that that little white part in yin and that little black part in yang, there is no completely selfless act, none. Fred Hampton did what he did. Malcolm did what he did because they thought, they felt, they needed to do what they wanted, what they felt they needed to do. That's selfishness. It ain't no judgment. It's not good or bad. It just is what it is. So they served a need within themselves, first, by going out to the people, second. And you can't escape that. And to do so, again, like I said, it empowers to the 90s things empowers the Messiah complex. Why was Jesus propped up and, and made the Messiah and all of this? Because supposedly he was completely selfless. But the reality of it is that just don't exist. Having a clear vision of purpose 
creates a level of selfish of of, of of selfishness and arrogance. That's human nature. The more I I'm clear, you, you look at any artist to take it out of the strictly revolutionary uh, 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 stadium. You look at an artist like Prince. Prince is extremely selfish because Prince had a very concise understanding of what it was he needed to do, period. The same goes for those of us that are in the movement. We've, brushed, we, we, we've not brushed people off, but we've scared people away because we are so succinct and exacting and, and particular and specific about what it is we need to do. I have to get this done. I can see it. I have to move this direction. There's an amount of arrogance and selfishness in that. So I don't think the sister was saying that that he was a bad guy because he did it. I don't think she was saying that he was trying to be top dog in it, uh, 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 that type of selfishness. But certainly, just like anybody else that pursues their vision, Anybody else that understands what it is they're supposed to be doing, whether it's for the quote-unquote good of the people or whether it's for the, the, the uh, Bill, uh, Bill, uh, Bill O'Neill, it's still pursuing a particular drive. It's satisfying a certain need and desire within oneself, which by definition, and I don't think we, we, can, we, can, we have to keep that as a part of the narrative, because as I said, if you take that away, he starts to be he and Malcolm and others start becoming messiahs who could do no wrong. No, Fred did some wrong. Malcolm did some shit that I had to come to terms with over years and be like, damn, you shouldn't have did that. You fucked up. You shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. That was bad. Not it's blah 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 blah. But those things have to be there to keep them human in order to keep them connected to the people. Otherwise, they get popped up above and beyond the people, and then they serve no purpose other than this, you know, ambiguous, high-in-the-sky, oh, type of thing, which is not beneficial for the people. So I think those things that selfishness that Sister was referring to is a good thing in that it keeps them grounded. It keeps them human. It keeps them, oh, I could be Fred Hampton. All I got to do is, Make the same decision. Go the same direction. I don't need any divine ordinance. If I mess up, that's okay. Fred messed up. Fred was selfish. Fred blah, 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 blah. So I think that that's an extremely important part of the narrative. And I think the sister wants to come in again, boy, the question mark is up. Since we dominated so much there, um, uh, you might want to let her chime in again. Since it was her point that everybody kind of went in on. Uh, I don't Hello? know. Well, you know, you like to talk, though. Okay. Okay. She, she's going in. Here, here she go. <laughs> or did I lose her? Yeah, I think or she, she logged back. She, log, she logged out. All right. Well, what, one thing I do want to say in regards to that. Okay, hold on. She's back on. Okay. All right, there we go. All right, sister, you, 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 you're on now. 6855, can you hear us? can hear you. Can you hear me? Now we can hear you. Now we can hear you. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so I, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to take away from, from, um, from anything that, 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 that was done. 
uh, in the movement. I just uh, I was just looking at it very realistically, and I'm very happy that uh, Brother Eric chimed in and kind of explained a little bit what I was uh, talking about. Um, I don't know if you guys have read um, some of the books by George Orwell, but you know he's he wrote uh, a lot of books about. Uh, and, and they were like sat, satires, and one of one of the best ones that I ever read was called Animal Farm, and it just kind of explains how um, how when 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 people you know when you have these revolutions, right? Uh, somebody nobody wakes up and says, you know what, I'm going to start a revolution. That that needs to make a change come from something within them that they feel like they have to fulfill, like Brother Eric says. In, in, in everything that we do, even in our own personal achievements, nobody says, you know what, I'm going to be um, um, uh, the, the, the most influential teacher in the whole wide world. They go to college because they want to become something. You know, they want to make a good living. So no one starts a revolution because they want to make change. Everybody starts it because there's something inside themselves that they want to fulfill. And we've got to be careful with history because we tend to romanticize a lot of our characters, a lot of our heroes, uh, and give them this hero complex. We have, in order to make a change now or to make a change for the future and become revolutionaries ourselves, we have to look at it from a realistic point of view. Because if we fail to look at it that way and just romanticize them as these big, untouchable characters that may all of these great decisions, then we're, we're never going to feel like we can do the same thing ourselves. And I look back watching the movie, right, even his fiancée, uh, De- Deborah Johnson, she felt that way to a certain extent. You know, in one of her poems that she wrote that he, he – um, she, you know, that, 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 that he, when he found her, her diary or her novel uh, journal, you know, she, she felt that way as well to where she, you know, she started questioning herself whether, you know, it, it would be a good idea to bring a child. And that, that is unselfishness right there, bring a child into a war zone, which they were essentially in. So uh, I did, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't mean to, to to take away from any of those achievements, but to just kind of remind everybody that we have to be realistic. You know, I I was born and raised in Africa, and where I'm from, um, we have a ton of Fred Hamptons, tons of intelligent men and women that have. Um, been part of liberation struggles, be part of liberating uh, their countries from colonial rule, you know, white rule, European rule. But over the years, we've seen these very same people that did very heroic things, spent 10, 15 years in prison, you know, fighting in war zones for, 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 for their people's uh, freedom, making some very, very selfish um, uh, decisions that can actually be seen as oppressing the same people that they try to liberate. So it's, you know, I just kind of want to look at it from a realist point of view, not taken away from anything. So. And, 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 and I, don't think, I don't think that, that you saying what you said at all took away, but um, I know we, and I do it with Malcolm, and I had to struggle with myself. Uh, with Malcolm, but there was a time, and I know Warren Sykes remember that I would walk around back in Texas, and when people would bring up, you know, certain things, I would remind them, he died of crack here. Again, to bring all of that back down to earth, 
and stop, you know, the, you know, and that, that's one of the dangers, I think, of movies is that, that it doesn't, that it, it does kind of put that image in folks' heads. So, I, I, like I said, I, I, I agree with the concept of the self-esteem. And, again, it's not a judgment. It's just what it is. See, I, 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 and like you, like Sykes, like, I don't think any of us want to take away from the work that he did, his legacy, the work his son, his wife, all of these folks around him did and were doing, still doing. Um, there's just a need to make sure that we stay grounded and not romanticize anything. Yeah, and even like I, 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 we, I heard he to jump on. Hello. Well, what I was going to say, I heard War coming in. I thought he was going to come in and have something to say. Go ahead. Because I want to make I, I, it clear I, I, <clears throat> that that what I'm talking about when I when I say that I don't we, we're breaking down. I want to break down. I'm breaking down or, or dealing with selfishness from a psychological point of view. Now, self. Automatically, human beings by nature are selfish. Your first instinct, your first response, any and every outside stimuli as a baby is to operate and act from a certain level of selfishness. You actually don't develop the ability to move outside of of yourself and operate from a perspective of, of caring about other people until you start developing your neocortex. And your brain is not fully developed, at least physically, until you're 25 years old. Most people never, ever, ever develop the level of maturity to operate from that certain aspect of the brain. The the human being is the only animal on the planet that has empathy. There are only four animals, four creatures on Earth who has a neocortex, who have evolved a neocortex. There's a dolphin, a dog, a chimpanzee, and a human being. And out of those four, the only one that develops empathy, the ability to feel another's pain, to actually feel for another person, even though that's not happening to me, we are the only people that develop that. Now, <laughs> this to me, this shows, this shows, I heard Brother E laughing back there. To me, this shows our ability to evolve from animal to our high state of being. To me, this, this shows this. And again, because we have the ability to do it doesn't mean we've always done it. Now, the same way that we're saying we don't want to romanticize people, because I don't believe in that in no way, form, or fashion. We all, as long as we're human, have the element of selfishness in us. It's a basic survival instinct. So it's there. But we cannot deny and ignore the fact that we also have a capacity for empathy as well. We can't deny that. We can't ignore that. We can't be so afraid of romanticism that we ignore our greatest one of our greatest attributes. We can't we can't miss that. As you just said, you had died as a crackhead. And for a long time, because of my background and what I came from, I could never read or study Huey because I understood that about you. It took me to sit in prison and actually dig into Huey's concepts and his ideas and his teachings to understand what Huey's value was. Because I couldn't see Huey's value because of that flaw, you know. I never saw Malcolm as some perfect guy. One of the things that I knew was a, was a, was a, was a, was a uh, mistake that Malcolm made was him publicly criticizing and verbally battling against Elijah Muhammad. You never yeah, do that. You know, I was taught as a, as, a, as a child, I was taught. My mother used to teach me never take family business outside of the house. My mom used to teach me that all the time. You never give outside people the ammunition needed 
to move in against us. You never get in there. And, you know, that was a mistake. And that showed his, that showed his humanism because it dealt with him being hurt. He did that because he was hurt. And so he got into his feelings. He got into his emotions, and he responded emotionally instead of intelligently. So we can see that. We can go through all of these people that, that, that did great things, uh, 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 as in Barbershop 2 said, Martin Luther King was a whore. You know what I'm saying? We, we, we can go through uh-huh. all of these. Yeah, he was. We know it. If we can did any kind of history, we know it. Martin Luther King used to like, like to get him some, a lot. You know what I'm saying? So these people, none of these people were perfect. In the in the sense that, but when we use certain words like selfish, arrogant, when we use these words, we we got to make sure that we separate these words from what we're saying to what these words actually mean. Because when you hear selfishness, you'll think some selfish cocky who 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 lacks empathy for another human being, who's a straight sociopath who only wants his way, some narcissistic cocksucker who's just out here because I want to be famous. You know, we got to get we we. We got to make sure, I think, that if, at the same time that we're not romanticizing these people, we got to make sure that we also not demonizing them as well. We got to actually see them for who they were. Was Fred Hampton selfish? He was a human being. I'm sure he was. We all are. We all operated from a selfish point of view at, at, at times. Brother E believes that the that the uh, that the number one thing that will liberate black people in America. Is accepting, is accepting their African culture and start operating as an African people. And he ain't trying to hear nothing else. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, he ain't trying to hear it. That's Brother E's That's selfish. Brother, Brother Wall Brother keeps dragging <laughs> women and children and families into this struggle, breaking these people's heart because he got to be a pastor. And he, he killing these people, essentially. Yes, so it's, yeah, of course there are selfishness there. You know, I was locked up with a brother, and he came up, and, 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 I, and, I, and I moved off this. He came up with a concept, a principle, of what he calls it, he called it the selfish program. Talked about with getting out of prison, focus on building self, getting self together, and cutting anybody and everybody off that, 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 that could hinder the personal growth that he was trying to move toward. He called it the selfish program. He didn't call it the serious program because he was just some hateful, evil, uh, self-centered cocky. He didn't call it that for that reason, but he called it that because at some point he realized that I have to focus on what I need to do to make sure that I move to the next level. And everybody doesn't always have my best interest at heart. So, yes, we we can be selfish, and I'm I'm sure that uh, Fred, like any other human being, had his, but... I just want to make sure that we also separate that from the, the, the sociopath who thinks everything is supposed to be revolved around him. You know, one of the things Huey said, yeah, I'm going to quote Huey again. One of the things Huey said, uh, Brother E, one of the things Huey said was that uh, <laughs> he said he said that uh, if you want to be a star, you need to go to Hollywood. Hollywood is the place they make stars. If you want to be a revolutionary, then you need to come to the Black, Black Panther Party. The black, the revolutionary places in the community, and the stars places in Hollywood. Basically, you wouldn't become famous here. Nobody's gonna mm-hmm. remember you. There's a hint out of all the pastors that that existed. I don't even know how many pastors existed, but out of all the pastors that existed, we only know a handful of names. These were basic people, and and you can guarantee 
that when people like Fred started or people like Huey started, and, and the fame hurt Huey. Huey actually could be the perfect symbol of everything that he warned the people, against, the revolutionaries against becoming, because he talked about that fame, and that fame got him. He talked against uh, uh, that reactionary suicide, and that got him. You know what I'm saying? That got him. And so uh-huh. we, we can see it in people like in people like Huey very clearly. I was going to ask you if he made that that that, that statement before or after he got his deluxe apartment in the sky. I, I, hey, uh, <laughs> well, I think another caller wants to jump in. Uh. Yeah, let let's do that. Um, number in and then one three. Let's do that. One three. Yeah, one three seven three. You in? One three seven three. Greetings. We this hear you. is the, Yeah, can you hear me? Greetings. This is Sister Seven. How are you? <laughs> Oh, good. All right, look. Power to the people, sister. Awesome. Go ahead. All power to the people. Awesome. I did have something to say until Brother Sykes said it all. I swear he did. I, just as I was about to say it. <laughs> you got to be careful with that word selfish. Selfish has a negative connotation to it. Arrogant has a negative connotation to it. Um, everything, depending on whose eyes are looking at it, is going to depend on how you see things. You know, like they're saying, the early bird gets the worm. If you a worm, that's not good, you know. And so everybody would love to think that they're the bird. You're not always the bird in this story. So, you know, we have to be careful about that. We have to – it's hard being any leader, leader, especially a black leader, because they will hang you. The very people that you are trying to help, trying to support, they will hang you, you know. So every man – living or dead, has done things where someone can say and point to them and say, you're not really righteous. You know, you're not on your stuff. You're not doing what you say you're about. So it's like, okay, I may have this problem, but that's not what I'm here representing. You know, I may not be able to read like I like to read, and, you know, my words may be stronger than my reading skills, but I'm not here to teach you English. I'm here to revolutionize you. So it's like we almost have to stop and think about what was this person's role and the role that they had, were they contrary in that role? You know, um, I think Dr. King's bedroom life was his wife's responsibility. I don't know if that was necessarily something that the the people on the whole needed to march against and boycott and we're not doing this and we're not doing that because he has this problem. That's his wife's problem. You know, and so we have to, I think, when we come in and start judging, because that's what it is, we have to be careful that we're not being too critical in our eyes of our leaders because everybody got a story and everybody got something that they didn't know, needed to outgrow, whatever, whatever. But we have to get out of the idea not just of not romanticizing but also not demonizing. We can't be hanging people up because they've made mistakes or they still making mistakes and they're trying to outgrow themselves. But it's been a second great show. I listen from beginning to almost end. So just continue, continue. But, you know, it's like you hit that on the head when you were like, we have got to really start looking realistically at people and we have to be careful of words. We all, you know, we're all trying to be leaders. We're all trying to work, but we still all working on ourselves. We can't wait till we're perfect people before we start trying to do something for our people. So that's just my two cents. Please keep it up. Wonderful conversation. 
All right, let me let me jump yeah, in I, on I, that I, note. My turn is here. My turn. My turn. <laughs> let me jump in on that note and say, and 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 and, and I'm gonna quote somebody out of out of ATL there, Sister Seven. Uh, Brother CeeLo Green referenced <laughs> perfection is the greatest imperfection. And I Absolutely. say that because too often we expect somebody like 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 Seven was saying in Psyche getting that, we expect somebody that stands up on a specific cause or knows their destiny as it applies to this particular thing to be the poster child for everything that is. We yeah. are not talking about a deity. We're talking about human beings. The human experience itself is based on imperfections. Yep. We have to embrace the concept of imperfections and recognize that and not get caught up in our level of selfishness in terms of comparison. And that's the whole thing about placing judgment. When you go to place yep. judgment, that's because you are dealing with something within you and you find that you find a flaw in somebody else and, and now your brain starts to try to analyze the fact that, well, they ain't good at this or they bad at that. So why should I follow them on this thing? So now we get into rationalization. So this is what I say when I talk about the baggage that some of us bring. Let me say this, and I'll let you jump in. This is what I say when I talk about the baggage that sometimes we bring into the movements that we have to work on in terms of our conditioning, because it's that type of baggage and those type of judgments that causes us to find further reasons to divide each other versus why we should be coming together. And I really again, go back to what I said about what I want people to take away from this is the fact that polarity is always, always a very good weaponization tool because you, you create a rationalization for either this or that. And when you get people caught up in that as a lifestyle and that as a way that they do their processing when they come to dealing with circumstances, when it comes to dealing with critical thinking, if I keep you in a level of polarity where it's either this or that at all times, and that zero and that one, then I got you where I need you to be because you will not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You will not be able to see the, 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 uh, the complexities of the human experience and galvanize around the positive and galvanize around the unification of bringing all people together as it applies to dealing with the levels of oppression that we're talking about. Because keep in mind, people, when we talk about fascism and when we talk about the ultimate evil that we're dealing with collectively, it is the fact that the wealth of the world is in the hands of a few people, period, period. So when we take that and we start stepping backwards from that problem to addressing the solution of that, then we got to, as a people, we got to figure out what it is that we, what, that we ultimately want to free ourselves from. Not allow dysfunctionalities to rule and constantly be divided against us. And that's why one of the things I loved about Donald Trump, and I'm going to say it like that, is that he showed people how easy it is to utilize that weapon of polarization. That dude yep. made it, became president behind that. And to this day, people ain't picked up on that. You can study, if nothing else, from Donald Trump, the fact that he knows how to walk into a room, polarize it, and walk out with his agenda and keep everybody in that damn room fighting each other and just smile away to the bank. That's how that dude lived his life. 
knowing the art of polarization. Go ahead, E. I'll let you take it now. Well, what I was going to say is to say that someone acted selfishly is not a judgment, but it's not a judgment. Good or bad, that's a judgment. And I don't think anybody said that it was good or bad that he had selfish tendencies like anyone else. No, but you're right. Leaders, people that we prop up as leaders, and that's what happened. The people propped him up as a leader. When we pop, when people pop somebody up as a leader, if they're not, those leaders are not critiqued by the people and are not criticized by the people, they tend to get involved in their own narcissistic. You can go down the list with those who started out as so-called revolutionaries around the world, only to end up doing the same thing that the previous administration or the previous rulership was doing to the people at large. So it's not a bad thing to say that Hampton, Malcolm, Huey, us are acting out our selfishness in this way. It's just acknowledging, yes, I'm a human being, and I'm acting out these, this selfish tendency by doing blah, blah, blah. Me personally, I don't deal with good and bad. I, there's judgment. You can argue about it. It's emotions. I don't, I don't want any parts of it. I want to see clearly what it is is going on. And the selfishness, though it may have been more personalized, O'Neill, and more uh, peopleized or general and, and gone in a different direction with Hampton, selfishness is still selfishness, regardless of how you feel about it, regardless of connotations. And I agree, the word selfishness has a con- negative connotation. So does black, so does African, so do most words that we would use try to tell the truth. Truth-telling words in a non-truth system or society tend to have a negative connotation. So when you tell the truth, it's looked at negatively because the words have that connotation. But to simply acknowledge what it is is something that has to be done so that if for no other reason than when Malcolm uh, dies or or, or, or team dies out of the picture of Hampton or whoever, the rest of the, the movement that they were propped up to be the leadership of doesn't fall apart. It, it helps to, to, to uh, minimize that Messiah complex because we keep them in check, we keep them in a certain position. And so, like I said, I don't see anything wrong with acknowledging that and and like I said, that's why I was, one of the reasons, besides the fact it was funny to me, but that I would walk around and tell people, yeah, he died as a crackhead. Because we have to keep that groundedness. We have to keep that in perspective so that we don't get caught up. And that's why I say it to y'all. That's why I tease a uh, 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 psych about Huey. So that that's my part. That's my role. That's what I'm going to do to make sure, you know, that's my, my contribution to making sure that we stay grounded in the reality, not saying that any of us have shown tendency to better the blah, 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 but that's my part, is to make sure that, it, that it's grounded and, you know, acknowledging, yes, it's a selfish thing to do what it is we're doing. It's a very fucking selfish thing. I'm good with that, me personally, because I could be selfish and be out here hoeing in the street or just making big money or whatever, but my selfishness, great selfishness, y'all selfishness, whatever, 
is directed at something bigger than that. That's really the only difference is how we uh, channel it, how we direct it. So I used to like to say uh, something to the effect that I'm not a revolutionary. I'm just a, what is it, a gangster that knows how to act like a revolutionary. Same sort of thing. We're selfish because we're human beings. That's our nature. But we are conscious of it and, and, and made a choice to use that selfishness in a selfless way. The problem is short all the time. So there you go. That's what I got. Man, if you well, want to run around here and punk the great site, I think you got to get that quote correctly. <laughs> see, you paraphrased him then. You see, see that brother Sykes, he used to say, you know, when he was hey, very, hey. very young and just coming into, the, into this lifestyle, that brother used to say, I'm not a revolutionary, I'm a gangster. Just so happens I know how to be a revolutionary. He didn't say act go. like one. He said okay. be one. My bad. You know, my bad. Because that's the, because in, in my thinking, I think the reason that guy said that is because uh, uh, gangsterism, if you evolve, the, the, the next natural phase of that evolution is the point that, because that, gangsterism is nothing but rebelliousness. And uh, George Jackson talks about it in Blood in My Eye. He says that when the, when the street robber robs, when the, uh, when the uh, peasant rebels, when, whenever you have that streak in society, whenever you have anything like that going on in society, it's that natural inclination of man to be free to choose his yeah. path, to choose his destiny. So that that's the next step forward revolutionary to me and my thinking. Now I want to ask, I want to put this question out there because I think we haven't talked about that, this just yet, and I think we should touch on it, if not for nothing else, for the listening audience to get to get a little perspectives on it. Bill O'Neill operated completely selfishly. He, I mean, uh, uh, selfishly, I acted like Alpo, you know. If you if you know anything about Alpo, uh, you know, watch the movie Paid in Full. The character that Cameron played, you know, Alpo was a real major big time drug dealer in Harlem back in the day, and he's the guy that ended up selling all his partners out. He not, and not only did he murder his partners for for a sack full of bricks of cocaine, but then he moved to Washington D.C., started his own little clique, and when he got caught, he snitched on everybody to save himself. And when they called him a snitch, he said, I'm not snitching. I'm just doing me. I'm doing our post. You know, that was his, that was his uh, response to that. You know, real street gangster. I'm just doing me. You know, I'm looking out for myself. And, you know, this is what Bill O'Neill was. But, but here's something that, that, that's just strikingly funny. You know, Alpo never kills himself. Bill O'Neill, he did that interview for Eyes and the Prize. And, you know, you know, I'm, I'm listening to it and, and, to me, it was it was kind of uh, it was kind of uh, unrealistic to me how he claimed that he was boots on the ground and that people he said that people will uh, will sit up and talk and be armchair revolutionaries and try to get a judgment on history, but he was actually boots on the ground. You know, he claimed mm-hmm. this. He I mean, he acted like he was just really a square business part of the movement. Yeah. And then that night. After he finished with the interview, he kills himself. So I would like, you know, I would like y'all or some of y'all to speak on that. Some of y'all, you know, the, the, why do you think he saw himself as boots on the ground and then the night after he gave that interview for Eyes on the Prize, he killed himself? I mean, no, I mean, none of us really know what was going on in his head, but just some opinions about what well, would drive him to that or what would lead him to that. 
I tell you, I, 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 I answer that simply because I do study a little bit of new linguistic programming. When you look at his eyes in that video, he is actually talking to himself. He is actually attempting to convince himself that he deserves the right to be recognized as a prominent part of the overall development of the movement. He is convinced, doing his best to convince himself that he is justified in living the way he lived because he is re, was rewarded as a result. So when you deal with the psychology behind that, on one side of the fence, what he's basically saying is that he gave it his all, unlike most. But by giving it his all, it's like this was my reward for giving it my all. So it's, it's being caught up between two worlds and at the same time trying to rationalize the behavior of one world with the reward of the other world. And it's a, it's, it's, it's a uh, uh, excuse of the, the younger people within the audience, but it's a brain fuck. Bottom line, that brain fuck is something that he continues to perpetuate within himself over time, over time, over time. And it got the best of him and cause him to implode. Simple as that. Go back, do y'all, and I'm telling listen on this now, go back, study NLP, just a little bit. Get a taste of it. Read body language. Watch the video. See that he's talking to himself. <laughs> and then go back. That's all I'm going to say. And, and, and I can say that same thing from certain perspectives on a lot of things. And that's all that, that's, that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with somebody that's fighting a demon. But at the same time, in fighting a demon, they're trying to make peace with him. And ultimately, he couldn't do it. So do you he think it, uh, essentially he, he recognized in his own mind that he, he did something wrong, that he was wrong, that he was on the wrong side of history, so to speak? No, I don't think he ever recognized it. I think he, he battled it all the way to the end to where he could not accept either side. He was, he was again, let's talk about when I said polarity. And let's even use that from the perspective of what he said about not dealing with good or evil. See, that, that is a concept that most people have a hard time grasping. That's why I keep throwing that word out there. I throw that word out there intentionally so yeah. that people will study themselves. Because most people do not get the concept of harmony. All we're talking about here is harmony, which is balance. But it is a condition that is hard for the human brain to make to 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 really uh, embrace from the standpoint of depending on you knowing yourself. If you don't know yourself, you will constantly be fighting between polarities, and at some point, that fight can t- can can cause people to commit acts of of suicide. And that don't necessarily mean physical suicide. Oftentimes, it goes back to uh, uh, um, substance abuse. This is the same thing. Substance abuse oftentimes is, is, is a result of us not being able to accept a condition of humanity that we're dealing with. And as a result of that, it is better to escape. So when he, William O'Neill, darted into the street, and this is me assuming he darted in the street, and that this ultimately wasn't an FBI plot to kill him because he might was going to reveal more information. But let's just say that we're assuming that he did, based on what I saw in his eyes on that interview. 
what I saw in his eyes as he was talking to himself, not the camera, but talking to himself. You're dealing with a level of implosion. As you fight that inner demon that, it, that, that deals with that, that essence of trying to be able to decide what side of the fence I'm on today, what side of the fence I'm on tomorrow, what side of the fence is the most righteous or, the, or the, deserves the most recognition, that level of implosion can oftentimes cause you to make split, irrational decisions that can end your life. When he ended his life, I do not think that he intentionally meant to end his life, but what he intentionally meant to do was pick a side of the fucking fence. And what that means uh, is death. Go ahead. I, I, I would agree with all except for one or two words. I think that he recognized his demon because in that, in that same interview, <clears throat> talking about how as he began to realize the scope of what it was he was doing, that this, they couldn't kill this dude <clears throat> all because of me and um, the, uh, the the role that I'm playing, that he expressed that he started having, he was having these conflicting emotions, but he had to soak it all up and bury it down because of the position that he was in. Um, and so I think, I don't think that you can play that type of part and at some point not realize, not recognize the fuckery that's going on and what they're doing. I think, like with most people, it's, the, it's not the recognition so much as it is the acceptance or the embracing of it. I think he never, and based on the account that he was with his family the night that uh, he died, and they were saying that he would go to the bathroom for, you know, 10, 15 minutes or whatever. And he did that a few times. And then, like, the last time he came out, he was enraged. He tried to jump out the window. They tried to hold him back, had mm-hmm. to wrestle him down. So based on that, it was apparent that there was some type of substance that he was dealing with to try to alleviate that, uh, to, to, you know, to try to numb those voices in his head and whatnot. And so I, I think that he recognized you know, especially other, after people are pointing things out, even white folks on the other side of the, the conversation are pointing it out, um, that what you did was fucked up or you hadn't read blah, 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 that at some point on some level he questioned that and he was not able to deal with the answer. He didn't want to hear the answer because it's, it's, it's one thing to question, it's another thing to embrace. You know, they think you don't want to know the answer to, well, that, to me yeah. that's what that is. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, that, that's the only thing that, that, that I would uh, change in, in, in what you said is just uh, the, the recognition and acceptance. But, you know, he, he played his role, and, again, he is an expression of, an extreme expression of the apathy that exists in the masses of our people um, because we, allowed our, we allow our leaders to be murdered, and we allow regular black folks to be murdered and really nothing happens, you know, or it'll happen for a little while and then we'll let it go. So it may not be the extreme, it may not be, you know, whatever, but it's definitely that still that along those lines of being caught up in our worldly selfishness and pursuing selfishness for the sake of self-breath and not really being empathetic. 
you know, it, to me it's, it's the same. It's just it's just a an extreme pose, you know. So yeah, there you go. Deal with that. Hello. Why y'all keep just I'm not here. saying nothing? Hello. Hello. Dead air. Well, you know, can you hear me? Yes, sir. We can hear you, Clay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's another thing he just pointed at that I think uh, that needs to be put out is how he talked about how the people, a lot of leaders, are just regular people all together to be murdered and killed, not recognizing one of the major things that Fred Hampton always stressed. He always stressed that wherever there is people, there is power. And the people do not recognize their potential power. They don't recognize it. And see, potential power is not actual power because it hasn't been actualized. Potential only means the possibility of power is there. So the people don't see it. They don't recognize it. By not recognizing it, it's not real. Because in the scene in the movie where the, where the uh, police come and they shoot up out the headquarters, broad daylight. The people are all out there. There's more people out there than, than there is police. And the people yeah. could have easily from shooting up the headquarters, easily. You know, it's a, it's a, uh, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a situation I always think about that shows and expresses the true power and energy that the people have. Uh, one time there was a situation when I was in prison where there was a, uh, there was a brother that, that I didn't even know the brother. I didn't deal with the brother. You know, he was on the wing with us. And uh, anyway, make a, try to make a long story as short as possible. There was a sergeant that came in the wing and decided to harass his brother. And he pulled the brother out of the uh he pulled the brother out of the wing and put him outside and put the brother's face against the glass and was using his hat, the bill of his hat, kinda like a duck's bill, and was poking the brother in the back of the head with it, screaming in the brother's ear. He was basically doing everything in his power to try to provoke the brother to move in any way to justify the oppressive the, the act that he wanted to take against his brother. And I'm sitting at, on the bench, and I'm up for parole. And I'm looking at this, and, I, and I'm having this wrestling match in my head, this selfish wrestling match, I guess you could say. Because on one end, I consider myself a revolutionary, and everybody on the, on, the, on the unit know that I consider myself a revolutionary. And on the other end, I'm going to go home. I'm up for parole. So I really can't really go and do what I usually do in situations like this. So I'm sitting there and I'm feeling bad for not participating. And finally, I turned to a brother of mine and I told him, if anything happens, take my property and put it in the cell for me and pack myself. And he said, what you supposed to do? And I said, well, I'm going to get locked up. And so I got up and I walked to the, I walked to the window. And uh, I knocked on the window, made the swords look at me. And I asked the swords, I said, are you really... Because of, because, of, uh, because of your own evil intentions to try to mess over this brother. And the, the sergeant told me, he said, I'll mess over you. And I told the sergeant, I said, I got two counts of 20 years and two counts of 10 years. I done already been messed over. Ain't nothing you can do to me. And so the sergeant came in with his little goon with him. They came in and they, he, he took his attention off the brother and he came at me. And the truth, and, and here's the point of the story, the truth is, that me, myself, I really had no real power to keep them from messing over me. But what happened next is where, where the real power came in. All the brothers jumped up. A few white guys, messing guys, all kind of people jumped up and created a circle around this sergeant. And now 
the sergeant had to fight. He had to back up. He had to hit her up and get out of that wing and, and slam that door. And and uh, another sergeant came, a lieutenant actually, came because they called him, and he came, and he came to talk to me, and he asked me what happened. And all the brothers circled around this lieutenant, and I told him the story. And he told me, basically, the, uh, the brother's not going to get a case. Uh, the brother's not going to get a case. The brother's not going to be uh, messed over. Uh, everything's good. Is that good? Is that what we want? I told him that's all we want. We just want the brother to be left alone. And he cleared everything up. My point is that if it wasn't for the people in that situation, me and that brother would have got messed out. And that's yeah. the truth. But the people stood up and, and, and exercised their strength. And in that situation, power was expressed. You know, and, and, yeah. and I just wanted to make that point on, on the power that people have. The people, true power. The people give power to, to currency, to economic system, to politicians. The people give power to that. The people do. And that's why they spend so much time, energy, money, and money in falsely educating the people so that the people can never be aware that the true power rests within them. Well, honestly, I want to—I really want to end the show on the note that Psych is talking about, because from from beginning to end, in reference to the role and its significance and the power of Fred Hampton, it is to get the people to recognize the power we have. Going into the concept of saying all power to all people—that's that's really it. And so when we talk about the, the essence of black leadership. From our perspective, not as it is defined by our oppressor, but as it is defined by us, it is to get us to recognize who we are and get us to see that if we recognize our vision and the power we hold as a people, like Sykes said, we would not be in the position we are now. We would not be in a position of dealing with fascism where the wealth of the world is in the hands of the few. So with that being said, Go ahead and end us. Anarchistic, opportunistic, individualistic, and chauvinistic. It's a uh, uh, customistic, and that's the bad part about it. People are not ready. Leaders take people into situations where the people can be massacred. People are not ready. They call it revolution. And it's nothing but child's play. It's folly. And it's criminal because people can be hurt. The people are not ready. We say that they're doing exactly what the pigs want them to do. The people are not ready to play around. And the pigs are prepared for this. And they wipe all of those young people out. We think these people may be sincere, but they're misguided. They're muddleheads and they're scatterbrained. The people are not ready. A way of discipline, uh, not to provoke pigs, an action not to talk about uh, setting up confrontations with the pigs because the people are not ready for their politically premature. They're not anywhere. The people are not ready for confrontation. The confrontation that they have are premature. They're politically premature and they're wrong because they commit people in a situation which they're not anywhere prepared for. They're not anywhere prepared for. Ready for competition. We continue to give them authority over us. The people are not ready. Give them the power. There's an illusion. They're not anywhere prepared for. Illusion. The people are not ready for competition. We continue to give them authority over us. The people are not ready. Give them the power. There's an illusion that they still have power to control, only because the ones who are being controlled. Accept
accept their control. There's an illusion. There's an illusion that they still have genius and creativity only because we continue to give them authority over us in areas of genius and authority. They continue to believe they have the power of leadership only because we give them the power of leadership. It's an illusion. And the only reason we're in the condition we're in is because the enslavement in our minds has us perpetuating a condition that has been over now for decades. People are not ready to give them the power. There's an illusion. We are not anywhere prepared for it. An illusion. The people are not ready for conversation. We continue to give them authority over us. The people are not ready. We give them the power. There are several forces that hold the chain on our minds. One of the most powerful forces is fear. There's an illusion. Fear. There's an illusion. Terror has been bred into our very of watching each other beat and destroyed and mutilated. We continue to give them authority over our fear. Standing up people are not ready for what we believe to be true. The people are not ready. We fear being identified with positive things for ourselves. There's an illusion. We fear saying to our enemies, you are an enemy. You always have been. You always will be, and I don't trust you to be another damn thing. That's the problem. We fear. Listen. 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 